Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 8 of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. My name is John, and I'll be your guest host for this season while we walk with millennial pastors in the Church of the Nazarene who are committed to serving their church and denomination. In a study done by Research Services, the Church of the Nazarene Global Ministry Center, it compared lead pastors within the denomination from 2000 and 2019, and some interesting trends were revealed. The primary age for lead pastors within the Church of the Nazarene in 2000 was 35 to 54. In 2019, we see a shift of those exact pastors simply getting older, and no new young leaders were emerging. We're here not to lament what has happened, but to celebrate those who have stayed and begin to explore why, why they chose uh, to stay, and perhaps how we can encourage and create new opportunities for others to remain as well. We're going to listen to these pastors' stories, hear from people who have spoken into their lives, and celebrate the choice they have made to stay within our denominational walls. I'm sure they're like me, and they've seen many of our friends and colleagues leave the Church of the Nazarene, and have perhaps even contemplated leaving as well. But alas, here we are, and I know without a doubt, the Church is better because they have remained. Well, today's guest is Nick Carpenter. Uh, Go ahead and say hello, Nick. Hello, everybody. It's good to good to have you today, Nick. Uh, uh, Nick and I went to school together. He was, I think, technically a year ahead of me. Is that is that right? Something like that, because I was a transfer student and came in at a right. weird time. And so, I mean, we were pretty much in all of the same classes at the same time together. So, who's counting? Yeah, who's counting? Yeah, it was it was wonderful. We, well, I remember many many deep theological and philosophical conversations and and bow ties and all sorts of fun stuff yeah <laughs> i think there's there's a photo that pops up on my facebook feed every every year i think of of us i think it's valentine's this. day oh that's what it was yeah yep. yeah it's good stuff good stuff well uh nick you've had you've had quite the journey you uh you're from bakersfield which is where i'm i'm i am currently mm-hmm. uh i remember that um Oh, so I was telling you, we, I often forget that we have some of the same the same history. Uh, but you've been you've been all over, right? Nampa, you've been Kansas City. Where else have you lived? Um, I mean, aside from one brief summer in Western Washington uh, for That's... you know helping at a summer camp, uh, right. It's it's been those three places: Bakersfield, Nampa, and Kansas City. You you can't can't get more Nazarene than the the three meccas. Bakersfield, <laughs> Nampa, if, if Kansas Bakers, City. <laughs> Bakersfield is a mecca. We might have a problem. <laughs> I I would say Bakersfield is one of those things that everyone seems to be connected to Bakersfield in some way, but no one wants to claim it. Right? That is incredibly accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just it's funny, and it sucked me back in. But it's good. It's good to be here. Uh, um, I keep saying that. No, I I, I mean it. Um, well, Nick. Let, why don't you um, start to kind of tell us tell us your story? You've been you, from once you graduated. You've had quite a journey of um, trying out different, I think, kind of pastoral ministry roles and and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so tell us tell us kind of um, your church story. How how did you get started? <laughs> what was your call? Um, some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I think is important is like I am. I, I always talk about I'm one of those pastors who's been Nazarene since the womb. Mm-hmm. Um, I am 
at least a fourth generation Nazarene on almost every side of my family. Um, there's a little bit of um, some others in there, but predominantly my entire yeah. family has been in the church of the Nazarene. And so I tell people like I was born on a Tuesday, I was in church on Sunday and I've never left. I've never known anything different. And you miss Wednesday night church? Never. No. <laughs> Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night yeah, yeah. <laughs> for for all of the growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a huge part of my story is sure. that like my family are the most like faithful, diligent lay people mm. where if there's ever an event, if there is something going on, we're there. Usually, if not to unlock the doors, the first ones to get in the doors and then the last ones to leave because we're always setting up, tearing down. And yeah. so I have never known life outside of church just because I was always involved. Um, youth uh, with children's nursery ministry, uh, tech stuff, uh, like I said, the setup and teardown. Yeah. So I've, I, I've just been in church and I've never left. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that nobody in my family has ever been in like ordained pastoral ministry. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the, the closest thing is that my mom's parents later in life when they uh, retired were missionaries and they went to China, Africa, Papua New Guinea. Right. And a few other kind of work and witness trips. Um, but as far as like pastoral parish ministry, I am the only one in my entire family who who has that kind of call, who has yeah. that um, passion in that career. And my entire family loves it. And they totally support me in it. It's yeah. just interesting to be like, oh, I guess this is uh, me. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. well, cool. um, and I didn't get my call to ministry until I was 19 years old. Okay. Um, and part of that was because, um, Again, I just always felt at home in the church mm. and I loved it. And I was always, I was always that kind of smart Bible kid growing up. Um, and what happened? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I know, I know. You're still that person. You were still that kid. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's just funny that like it was never something I thought about until, you know, I was throughout my adolescent years i thought i was going to be a band teacher i love music oh, right that's right yeah um and then my first i went to junior college back in bakersfield for three years and during my first semester um i tried the music thing it didn't work out and then here's here's my call story are you ready this is the yeah. most undramatic thing love it i was in the backyard of my house cleaning the pool and out of nowhere, just the faintest littlest light bulb goes off in my head and says, I could go into ministry. Okay, I guess that's it. And, th <laughs> nice. and that was it. Like, nice. almost the like opposite of a Damascus Road right, right. thing. Yeah. Um, but from there, I, I changed from music and I studied philosophy and communication mm. through junior college. And then I started like instead of just going to Bible study, I started like leading Bible study for sure. our college group um, and just fell in love with it. And then when I came to NNU, I was like, I'm going to be a ministry major because I'm going to go into ministry. Um, 
And the weird thing about coming to NNU was even though I had been in the Church of the Nazarene my entire life, mm-hmm. there were so many things about specific like Nazarendom that I had never been taught, didn't mm-hmm. know. And so it was my first semester and I'm hearing all of these things about, you know, the Wesleyan perspective on scripture and doctrine and all this stuff. And I'm like, who's coming up with all of this? Where did this come from? Um, Even getting in an argument with one of my professors about why do you care about this John Wesley guy so much? And you talk about him more than Jesus. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so for, three years that I was an undergrad student here, it was just learning about the heritage and the, the uniqueness that is, you know, the Wesleyan holiness tradition. And then finally my last, not even last semester, last quarter Mm. taking theology of holiness with Diane LeClaire. Yeah. And reading her, her green book. Yes. And sitting in class with her. It all came together. It all clicked. Mm. And I was like, this is it. Yeah. yeah. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is what I want to think about, read about, write about, talk about is, is this thing called holiness yeah. and sanctification and, and perfect love. And I was like, that's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm hooked. I'm, I'm in. Um, and I've just been, you know, doing that nerdy pursuit yeah. ever since of anytime someone gives me a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night class or preaching or whatever. I'm like, I got to tell you about this yes. and just loving, absolutely falling in love with the heritage that we have um, and hearing the beauty and the goodness that can come from it. And the way I've described it is, if you get an incredible gift, what you want to do is you want to take that and you want to show everybody that mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, just because you love it so much and it gets you so excited, you want to go and be like, look at this thing. This yeah. is the coolest thing ever. I got to show everybody. I got to tell everybody. And And not only is that kind of how I view the gospel, but that's what I, that's how I feel about the the heritage the doctrine and just the life that is nazarendom yeah. like i i love it and it is my family um in the sense like i was born into it i didn't get to choose it right um i'm choosing to stay in it but i didn't get to choose that that first part and so i'm like you know what this is my family and i love them and they're, they're a little quirky at points. Yeah. Um, not always the healthiest, but this is where I'm at and this is who I love. And so here I am. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And, and a big shout out to, to Dr. Diane LeClaire. It, mm. I think I had a very similar moment in her class of, um, I don't know if we took holiness together. I can't, I think you were, I think you were a year ahead of me ahead for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I've, I've drawn her graph her. Or upward yeah, the Leclerc line. The Leclerc line, yeah, many, yep. many times. Um, so if, if if you're listening and you have not read Dr. Diane Leclerc's, I don't even know what it's called. Her I holiness think it's Discovering, Discovering, Discovering Holiness, holiness yeah, the Heart of Wesleyan Holiness, 
uh, theology. Of, of course, you know, Nick. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Discovering Christian holiness. That's good. Um, it is dense. It is thick. It is not, not for the faint of heart, uh, but it is a beautiful, beautiful work. Um, if, if, if you want a summary, just uh, you can message Nick and he will gladly uh, <laughs> give, well, give you a summary. Well, I will note. give you a summary, but it will be a lengthy one because yeah. I'll just get too excited. Just, and... just easier to read the book, yeah. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> no, it's, it's good stuff. Um, no, that's, that's great, Nick. And so from, from that, that pool boy moment, <laughs> knowing, <laughs> knowing you were going to go into ministry, was that, was that you knew, because you've done a lot of things of, chaplaincy and hospice ministry and associate pastor stuff and Mm -hmm. and more um did you know the direction you were going for pastoral ministry or was it just i'm called to serve the church vocationally and figure that out i think when i got my call at 19 it was just a general going into ministry yeah um when i was an undergrad student um i was convinced i was absolutely utterly convinced that my calling was to be a professor mm-hmm. um and and like teach theology at yeah. a wesleyan or methodist school um and that is still definitely a big part of my call yeah um but one of the things that i have learned is um a call can change and often does yeah um and that's not a bad thing um i definitely have been the kind of personality where like um once i figure out what it is that i like and what i want to do then it's like that's the only thing Mm -hmm. and single focus dead ahead and and learning like you know what it's okay if that changes and that adapts um and yeah like when i was in kansas city um my first job after graduating seminary was to be a chaplain in a mental health hospital, yeah. uh, which ties in a lot with my story of what was going on in that time. I never planned it. I never anticipated it, but yeah. that's where we went. And then when I moved back to Nampa, um, the hospice chaplaincy, like I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't planning on it, but I was like, yeah, this is something I could do. Yeah. And I did that. And um it was good and i was like oh there's something here so learning to be flexible and adaptable Mm -hmm. with ministry um not very easy especially for someone who is more rigid and structured and right um it's like i want to do the one thing and do it really well like yeah that's nice now you're going to do all these other things too right right yeah no that's good and and i think it's Especially if, uh, for those maybe listening, if you're wrestling with a call or you're maybe new in the call, um, that that's, I think, I, and I know that was one of the things that, like, Mike Kip taught us in his mm-hmm. call to ministry class and, and so on. But but to really understand that, right, we're not called, even the, it's weird because the language we use, we're not called to a church, we're not called to a certain situation, we're not even called to a to be a lead pastor, right, or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right, we're called to serve the kingdom, um, we're yeah. called to... Um, and, and we often feel right. These inklings of, no, I'm called to be a youth pastor. Um, and we live out our vocational life as a youth pastor, which is not bad or not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe sometimes we, right. We bottleneck God's leading, right. of saying, no, no, yeah. that God, this is what I'm going to do. You figure it out where I'm supposed to go. Um, rather than saying, mm-hmm. which I think you've done well, I think of just saying, God, I'm called, where do you want me to go? 
Um, and sometimes yeah. he says, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll, you know exactly. Yeah, just go yeah. and we'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So, okay. So you, so you graduated from NNU and did you head right to NTS or did you have some time? Um, I was, I was planning to. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and then what happened was, is I was offered um, to be part of a grant program here at NNU. It was called right. Murdoch Vision and Call. And the, which, which I was a part of as well. Yeah. yeah. And the premise was, if you commit yourselves to two years of full-time ministry and full-time uh, grad school at the same time, yep. we will pay for your education and we will pay for your housing and then a stipend on the end. And I was like, I am never going to get an opportunity like this ever. Right. Yep, I'm doing it. Um, I was freshly married at the time. Like the reason we got married when we did was because we were planning to go to seminary. And then it was, oh, we're staying here. Yep. Cool same, beans. Same story with me and my wife. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I um uh I stayed in Nampa. I ended up going to work at First Christian Church Disciples of Christ okay. because that's um my wife had gotten a job there helping with children's stuff. And the lead pastor joked about needing an associate. And I said, ha ha, I'll pray about that. And then like a few weeks later, he called me up and said, no, I'm serious. And yeah. I said, well, as it happens. Um, I need someone so, to serve. Yeah. 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 And so I stayed there for two and a half years. And I was able, and the best part about that was um, the pastor, Steve, was very much like, your ministry is your schoolwork. And so I want you to dedicate the majority of your time and energy to doing that. Oh, wow. Because if you do that well, you will be able to do ministry very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm still profoundly grateful for that gift. Yeah. And that is where I started to really um, fall in love with like study mm -hmm. and with learning. Um, and just diving deep into theological studies and church history. Um, and I really, really just thrived in that. And then being able to go to um, Sunday schools and Wednesday nights and talk about it and teach about it. Yeah. And the cool thing was, is I had to do it in an ecumenical approach. Sure. That was like, this is what I love and where I'm coming from. But let me try to translate it in a way that you will understand. Or this is what I understand and see. How do you understand and see this? Yeah. Um, and also because it was grad school, I was reading people and perspectives that were all over the board. Very diverse. Yeah. Yeah. And so that two, two and a half years was just a wonderful kind of laboratory experiential practicum of taking in all this stuff and then pouring it out and and really you know i i did not do everything well in that time but to be able to have a safe place to practice express and try it out so that when i did end up graduating with my ma at nnu and then going to seminary um i was already so well formed and well tried in a certain sense yeah that i just hit the ground running and was just full bore having right. at it yeah 
Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And so, um, so when you went to seminary, were you did you go full time student, or were you doing other ministry stuff? And um, I went full time student for the first year. Okay. Um, part of that was because I couldn't find a job for the first semester, sure. <laughs> um, which was all kinds of difficult and frustrating. Um, lots of stress and anguish about you know finances and and yeah. everything. And my my wife was able to have a job at the seminary. Um, and so I was just kind of like, OK, um, I guess I'm just going to throw myself into my studies. Um, and then the next two years, I was part time um, because of life stuff that happened. And also um, it took me until, you know, I got there in August of 2016. And then in August of 2017 was when I was offered a staff position at Knoll Avenue Church of the Nazarene, which is where we had been attending for the past year. And then I was um, offered a position to take over the word and table service, Mm. um, which is actually the thing that drew us to that church. Oh, cool. Um, And we loved it. We're always a part of it. And then the guy who was leading it was moving away and they said, Hey, we want you to take this over. And I was just like, this is, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so that's when I took that. And so then I switched over to part-time so that I could focus on doing all those things as well. Yeah. Yeah. For for those that don't know what word and table service is, tell us a little bit about what. what Oh man. It's shortly briefly. Yes. Uh, Word and table service is basically. Uh, just a more high church, liturgical, sacramental style of worship. So if you've been to uh, Anglican, uh, certain Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, um, I used to joke um, that we were Catholic Mass light. Yeah. Um, but really, we were more like Anglican Mass light. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> because it was so, like, stripped down and simple. But, I mean, we we, based on the lectionary, we read from all four of the passages every week. Mm. We followed the seasons of the church calendar. Um, we had uh, Eucharist every single week um, and just had that very structured and ordered rhythm of worship that was beautiful and lovely and something I have just loved. And, and it's it's a huge incremental part of the way I think about ministry and church and worship yeah no that's cool i think it's 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 interesting it's cool your journey up to this point right you had you know a pastor of a church your wife was attending or your probably girlfriend at that time right um or, mm-hmm. uh, yeah and <clears throat> made a made a joke about hey here's a young kid who maybe wants to be a pastor and and gave you an opportunity right and pretty incredible opportunity there in Nampa do mm-hmm. do uh, ministry while doing school and 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 actually gave you the grace to do school right which yeah uh, which which i think which is is unique and cool um and then another opportunity right of someone probably who saw again another young seminary student um which they're probably used to seminary students in that area but <clears throat> was able to i mean give you a a pretty remarkable service um an mm-hmm. opportunity to you know probably experiment a little bit and lead and guide and saw that that's that's one. How was that? How was that relationship with the pastor and 
Did you have people that were helping mentor you along in running that service? Um, how did that, um, what did that look like? Well, fortunately, because I had been attending that service for about a year, um, and I had I had attended um, another Word and Table service back here in Nampa that College Church had started. Not a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. And so I kind of knew the ins and outs. Um, and then the lead pastor of Nall, his name was Steve Johnson. Love that man. Um, he was very much like, listen, this is your thing. Mm. I trust you. You know what you're doing. You do whatever you want with it. Nice. And and me being the kind of structured liturgist sacramental pastor, yeah. I was like, we're going to do what the Book of Common Prayer tells us to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it was like, I'm not going to experiment. I'm going to do what the book tells us to do cool. because I trust that, you know, the church yeah. and the tradition and everything knows what it's talking about. Um, and there was opportunity to flex and try a few things here and there, but mostly I think one of the beautiful parts about it and just liturgical worship in general is I don't have to think up whatever. I don't have to like come up with this brilliant series or have, you know, all of these different pieces that I'm like, oh, this is going to be the best worship service. Oh, and next week we got to make it even better. It's like, yep. no, you just come in, you follow these simple little steps, and you trust that if you do, you know, these things over and over and over again, it itself will become beautiful and transformative. Yep. And it's not about me and what I say and what I do. Um, like one of the best parts was I read the same liturgy of you know, confession, absolution, right. um, epiclesis and anamnesis over the table every single week. And yet every single week it spoke to me. It was, and it was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't have to come up with this. Yeah. And, and all of that anxiety and pressure that pastors feel is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Um, and how and how did how did people respond to that that service within that church? Well, I had in my three years of running that service, the average attendance was six. Nice, yeah. And wow. so, like, very small. Yeah. Um, it was usually myself, um, another couple from seminary, an older couple, mm. um, like in their eighties. And the only reason they came was because they couldn't wake up on time Early to go to Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. And so they were just like, oh, well, church is on Sunday night, Saturday night. Let's go to that. Yeah. Like no liturgical sacramental high church background at all. Yeah. They were just like, oh, we're just glad to be in church. And yeah. we have no idea what's going on, but we're just glad to be here. And then one or two other people. Um, and so they all were just i mean it it really became this family unit of like just the five or six of us every single week and we would share the liturgy of one person would read the old testament one person would read um the psalm one person would do this part of the prayer right. um and so we all shared it together right. and it just you know became one of those things where it's like, well, yeah, this is just what we do. Yeah. And every once in a while we would have a new person come uh, and they would appreciate it. 
or they would be really confused. But um, at least the core people who were there all the time, you know, we, it was that was just our home little family. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fun. Very cool. So from so so you did that through seminary. You and you graduated with. Did you graduate with your MDiv? I actually started as an MDiv student. Um, at one point in the middle, I actually applied for and was accepted into the DMIN program mm. and was going to do that. And then life happened and it was like, okay, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And so then I switched over to one of their MAs. It was the MA in Christian Formation Discipleship. Oh, cool. Um, because my first MA was Spiritual Formation and it was similar, close enough that it was like, all right, let's, you know, switch you over get you done and get you out of here. Yeah. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Cool. Um, so, so you had some, you had some life happening uh, in the middle of that situation. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how, I don't know what you want to share, share about that, but then maybe what, where'd you, where'd you go after? Mm -hmm. So um, just as a trigger warning for any listeners, yeah. we're going to be talking about some pretty serious um, mental health and, um, other things. So yep. this is your content warning, trigger warning. <laughs> um, so uh, my wife and I got married January of 2014, um, right before I graduated undergrad. We stayed in Nampa, did all that. Um, I knew she had difficulties with anxiety and depression um, beforehand, but, you know, it was, there were moments where it was serious, but it was never like a huge thing if that makes sense right. yeah um and so then we moved to kansas city and like i said i wasn't able to get a job that first semester um and we had saved up a ton of money and then in the first few months it was just all gone yeah. and then eventually when i did get a job um in the spring of 2017 like Things were kind of doing okay, but there was still a lot of stress and her job at the seminary, like there were just a couple things that she just was really worried about, really nervous about. And somehow her health just started to decline rapidly um, to the point where at the end of July, um, she became suicidal mm. and just refused to go to work, didn't want to go out, didn't want to talk to anybody, see anybody. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm working, I'm about to start my second year of seminary and I'm just offered this new pastoral position. Right. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my wife is suicidal. I have to somehow figure out how to keep her safe and alive. Right. And so then um Finally, it was a Saturday night, the very last night of my predecessor for the Word and Table service. Um, uh, it finally was to the point where, like, I said, I think we need to go talk to somebody. And she's like, I don't want to. I'm like, I know you don't. But let's just talk to somebody. I'm not saying we have to do anything. Let's right. just go talk. And by the grace of God, she was okay with that. Yeah. Um, and so we went to the emergency room um, at the research hospital that's literally on the other side of the street from the seminary. Okay. Um, and 
she went in and I sat in the waiting room for four or five hours just waiting. And then sometime after midnight, they admitted her into the psychiatric unit of the hospital um, for suicidal ideation. And she was in there for a week and I just kind of went home and kind of crashed because it was like we had just moved across the street from the seminary and um, all the other things. And I'd been trying to keep my wife alive for like a week. Yeah. Um, chronically just freaking out about everything. Um, and that was the first hospitalization in a two and a half year period of seven. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, the first four were for ideation and the last three were for actual attempts. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we just kind of had an up and down with that. Um, she was later diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which if you know anything about that is pretty, pretty substantial and severe. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was that when she came out of the hospital that first week, she came back home and she sort of didn't leave the house for like mm. three months. Wow. Like we would go to appointments for a doctor or for a therapist, but like that was it. Mm. And so I had to be full-time caregiver to my very emotionally fragile wife while seminary student, while working at the seminary and this new pastoral assignment. Yeah. Um, and um, during that time, she began to tell me that two of the biggest things that really um, caused her to have that breakdown was one, she said, I don't believe in God anymore. Mm -hmm. Um she said, I, you know, she had grown up in a very fundamentalist, reformed, legalistic uh, church background. Um, fun fact, when we got engaged, they didn't think I was a Christian. And so they thought she was losing her salvation by agreeing to marry me. Wow. Um, and growing from that and then coming to learn about the Wesleyan tradition, but also some other things. And it just got to the point where she was like, you know what? I just, I just don't believe in God anymore. Mm. Um, she said, you are called and gifted to be a pastor, and I support that, but don't ever involve me in ministry. Mm. And I just said, okay, we'll figure this out. Yeah. And this, and the second thing was, she said, and I just, and the other thing is, I am bisexual. Um, later, she would amend that to pansexual, and she said, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and this is where I'm at and I need you to be okay with that. Right. I said, okay. Right. Um, we will figure this out. You're still married to me and you're still committed to me. Right. And she goes, yes, I am. Oh, good. Yep. Um, and so for two and a half years, you know, all three of those things were a huge part of our story was, you know, I'm in seminary learning to be a pastor, but at the same time, I am crash coursing myself on mental health right. um, and, and kind of therapeutic counseling and eventually trauma-informed ways of doing ministry, yeah. um, throwing myself into conversations about the LGBTQ community to figure out how do we do this? How do we have these conversations? Um, 
And I, I can honestly say the only reason I made it through all of that was because of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I say the church, I mean both my local church of Knoll Avenue Church of the Nazarene and the seminary. Um, because I was able to talk to mostly it was just the pastoral staff at church. And I was always telling them like, this is what we're dealing with this week. And this is what's going on here. And everybody, all of the pastors were just supportive Mm. and empathetic. And they're like, Nick, we just want to help you. We just want to keep you well and safe. And, you know, whatever we can do to help you guys, let us know. And then at the seminary, uh, that was one of the nice things about being at seminary was I had all of these professors that I could go to and say, hey, this is the kind of thing I'm dealing with. These are the conversations I'm having. Help me talk this out. Um, And then I had one of my favorite people in the whole world is Jaron Rowell. Um, I love that man. And he has meant so much to me because when all this started, he was the DS for the Kansas City District. Okay. And then he became the president of the seminary. Right. And so I went from talking to him as DS and like, hey, help me keep my credentials and help me figure right. this out, to then at the seminary, just seeing him in the hallway and him asking, um, how are you doing? How is she doing? Um, how can I pray for you guys? And like he and his wife, Starla kind of adopted me and just became so, so vital. Um, and there were many days where either to church staff or the seminary people, I said, listen, I just, I just don't have any hope right now. I can't pray. I, I am just in anguish and in pain and suffering. And I, I don't know how to do this. And the response I continually got was, we will hope on your behalf. Mm. We will pray for you because you can't pray right now. And so to have the church kind of rally around me and us and say, um, we know that this is really hard for you and you can't do this right now. So let us do it for you until you can do it again. Yeah. I mean, literally kind of saved my life. Yeah. Um, and was the only way I was able to make it for as long as I did. Um, fast forward to the beginning of 2020. Um, my wife then comes to me and starts talking about being polyamorous. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that means multiple lovers, multiple partners. And I said, I am not okay with that. I can't do that. And her response was, well, this is who I am. This is how I'm wired. And so I'm going to do it. And so for the next five months after that, um, we were separated. And she went off with multiple people. And um, we just had a time of, is this even salvageable? Can we do this? Because I'm trying to remain faithful to my call. Right. Um, And you are kind of exploring this new lifestyle, this new 
person, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it was just a matter of like, can we, can we reconcile this? And after five months, we finally decided, no, we can't. Mm. And so um, I immediately went to my district superintendent and to my lead pastor. And I said, guys, I'm getting a divorce. And they were incredibly supportive and understanding mm. because they had known, you know, everything that gotten up right. to that point. Right. And so it wasn't a question of like, well, how are you, why are you doing this? What's going on? It was yep. just like, okay, we get it and we understand and let's walk with you through that. Yeah. So, and then we, you know, walked through that process on October 22nd of 2020, my divorce was finalized. And October 23rd, I packed up a U-Haul truck and moved back to Nampa, Idaho, uh, back home to be with all of my family and close friends. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, I, one of the incredible things I found, you know, I, was, I was, I was kind of getting caught up with your story was, um, as you mentioned, the support that you had from the district, from the seminary, from, from those around. And mm -hmm. I, I think... I think there's one of these, these, this perspective, I think a lot of us have, especially as younger pastors of like, we're still trying to figure life out and things happen and we don't share that, right? Like we, we keep it to ourselves or whatever it is out of some sort of fear, right? Of, mm -hmm. of sharing that. Was that some of the hurdles you had to struggle with as you were sharing with some of the district leadership and, and people around? Um. I didn't necessarily, Good. but that's also because I have the personality quirk of, I guess you would call it being an oversharer. Sure. Um, no, and not, so, not you, Nick. No, no way. No, I know. No. I know. And so I, uh, like, I don't have any, like, shame in that. Yeah. And, and I am, like, willing to just talk about stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened in that time that became formative was, one, I was met with such immense difficulties that I knew mm. I have to reach out and ask for help yeah. or I cannot, I will literally not survive this. Right, right. And so I, I had to for my own survival's sake. Yeah. Um, but also, I realized during the process. Um, two things one um by me sharing my story by me sharing my vulnerabilities and the honest what happened what i'm thinking whatever i realize oh i'm not the only one mm. um and helping other people mm. i can't tell you how many times from the pulpit i would talk about in very discreet generalized terms sure mental health stuff or you know lamenting with god and screaming yelling at god yeah. and having people come up to me afterwards and say i thought i was the only one mm. and so sharing my story realizing i'm not the only one and neither are you yeah but two one of the most important parts is recognizing that just as important as extending grace and compassion is receiving it and and how it is vitally important 
for the Christian mm. to receive grace yeah. from God and from other people. Um, and we are very hesitant to do that yeah. because it puts us out of control, right. because it puts us in a posture of, of need. Um, and yet, I would argue you can't be a Christian without it. Um, you have to be able to receive grace. And so I, I asked for help from my district, from the seminary, from my church, because I was like, I can't do this and I need help. And they were willing to say, yeah, let's help you. Because um, if you've ever encountered a dear friend who is struggling, you want to help them. Yeah. Not because you have to, not because it's an obligation, but because you care about that person so much that you're like, no, please let me help you. And by them saying no, it is a denial of grace and love and connection. And so I learned, um, you know, I'm not the only one and you have to receive just as much as you give. Yeah. And I had a, you know, kind of two and a half year crash course on that. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of learning in the trenches of right what it really means that, that that's powerful um yeah and i i just have just this beautiful picture right of you learning how to administer the sacraments mm. right in grace and and teach people to receive that grace while you're understanding how to receive grace and mm-hmm. and deal with that yeah what a powerful what a powerful image um yeah so so it's it's still just remarkable. I love I love that um I think a story that could have went a very different way within the Nazarene church and credential and and story and all that kind of stuff. Um but I it, as you said I think because you were so open and honest and sharing through the journey, right, of what yeah. was happening. They're able to really understand and process with you and um and those kinds of things. So so the divorce happened you moved back to Nampa. What was next? How did you How did you recover? What did that do with your call? Where did you go? Um, yeah. Well, when I was planning to come back to Nampa, um, I, um, I had worked as a chaplain in the mental health hospital for a year um, because I graduated seminary, needed a job, and I actually had connections with that hospital because that's where my uh, wife had been stayed for for one of her stints and so i had a connection there and they hired me as their chaplain Mm. i worked there for a year um and then when i was planning to come back to nampa i thought well i did a chaplain job i was good at it i enjoyed it so let's look at that and there happened to be a hospice chaplain position um in this area and i thought Okay, let's give it a shot. Yeah. Um, funny was when I was doing the video interview, um, the supervisor asked, do you have any experience with hospice? I said, do I have experience with hospice? No. Do I have experience with death, suffering, grief, loss, and all of those things? You bet I do. Yeah. Uh, and that was good enough for her. Right. Um, and so I moved back knowing I had a job, knowing I had a, a ministry sort of connected job. Right. Um, I was district licensed at the time. And so, you know, you can only hold a chaplaincy position through the district if you're ordained. Um, and so I knew I had to, 
you know, transfer my license over and get all that straightened out. And fortunately, the the district superintendent here kind of knew a little bit of my story and was understanding. Um, And when I moved back, I kind of had this feeling of like, I get to pick whatever church like I can go to because I'm not assigned anywhere. Right. Um, and so really took some time to say, where do I need to go? Mm. Like, not just, oh, this would be great. This would be fun. Where do I want to go? Right. No. Yeah. It's like, no, not where I want to go. Where do I need to go? Mm. And where that landed me was Nampa First Church because um, Brian Thomas, who's the pastor there, um, he he's on the board for NTS. And so he would come for meetings and different things. And yeah. And he was someone who would actually kind of keep tabs on me. Oh, cool. Um, just because before we moved to Kansas City, I had met with him once or twice. Um, and so he kind of kept tabs and sort of knew what was going on. Yeah. And so when I came back, he was one of the first people I went to see and talk to. And I just really felt like, you know what? Not only is is Brian fantastic of like he and I share a a love of liturgical sacramental worship and he's a he's a very bright intelligent person and we can have those conversations but he has such a good pastoral presence mindset um that I was like I can I, I want to be under his shepherding mm. as I go through this process because I knew that I would have to do the divorce barrier removal process. Yep. And, and he was someone that I was like, I want to go through this process with him. Mm. And so, um, and he told me, he said, I'm with you every step of the way. We will do whatever we can to, to do this well. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just passed my third year here in Nampa and I've been at first church the whole time. Um, I also have a lot of really good family friends um, who go to Nampa first who have been part of my healing journey as well. Um, But Brian was a huge factor of trusting him Mm. to know that, yeah, this is probably not going to be fun or easy, but we can, we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. And, and yeah, you know what, one of the questions that I, I, I've been asking our guests is, is what would you tell some of the older pastors, right? What would you tell people to help invest in younger people? Um, and I think, right, Brian Thomas, of right, what he did of, I think that's one of the answers, right? Is when you find someone like a Nick Carpenter um, that you know is going away or whatever it is of that keeping tabs, keeping relationship, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's powerful, um, of, because you never know what's going to happen, right? You never know what situation, you never know where they may come um, or, or when they may come back um, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to invest in, in ministry. And, and probably, right, one of the reasons you knew you could come back to Nampa knowing that you had somebody in your corner, right? Um, yeah. And I mean, I knew I was coming back here because, like I said, my whole family lives here. Right. Made sense. Yeah. Yeah. But knowing knowing that I already had roots here, with yeah. the school, with churches, with pastors. Um, and yeah, it was like a security blanket and, and, a, and a comfort. Um, but knowing 
at least to a certain degree. This is a safe place. I know I can be here. I know I'm going to be taken care of. Um, I realize that's not the case for everybody yeah. in different areas, pastors, districts, etc. But I am very grateful that it was for me yeah. and that I could come and trust everybody with my story, with my suffering and what had happened and know that I was going to be taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So how was that? So you've been in Nampa three years. Mm -hmm. uh, how has that journey been through the credentialing process, through kind of ministry? <laughs> you're, so you only did the hospice chaplaincy for a year. Was that, was that right? Two years. Two years. Oh, two years. Okay. Um, and then now you're more kind of in this volunteer staff position, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, there at Nampa first. Yeah. So how has that journey been as you're kind of walking through healing? And, yeah. So I have been a, a volunteer staff pastor at Nampa First since I got here, mm -hmm. just because, you know, I needed to keep an assignment with the assignment, district right. just yeah. to keep my credentials going. Um, and I knew I was going to do the divorce barrier process, and I was okay with that. Um, kind of a couple hiccups that had happened. <clears throat> the first one was, if you go through the divorce process, um, we learned that you cannot be granted a district license. You also cannot have a district license renewed if you are in the midst of a divorce process. Um, and both Brian and myself did not know that. Yeah. And he's part of the credentialing board and, and he didn't know that. And one of the awesome things was he was the one who called me and said, I'm calling you and telling you myself because I didn't know about this. And I just found out about it. Mm. Um, and he says, and I called the general secretary's office <laughs> because I was like, I didn't know this who, how. Yeah. And so um, for a year I had to go back to a local license mm. and then reapply to get my district license and come back to that. And I was frustrated by that. Sure. Um, kind of like um, there was supposedly this year, um, we were thinking I was going to be eligible for ordination. Turns out I'm not because of some, you know, how they measure the time of service yeah. and everything. Yeah. And so kind of in a similar boat of like, oh, I thought it was going to go this way. And it didn't. And the thing that I've come away with, and this is just me, I'm not, this is not prescriptive. This is descriptive. Yeah. Trust the process. Mm. Um, and I trust that, okay, this is not showing up right now, even though for all intents and purposes, it should. Yeah. Because I want it, because other people I know and trust want that for me. Right. And yet it's not here. And just kind of like with the ministry thing of like going to all these different things that I didn't plan or anticipate. It's like, you know what? I just trust that God is still in the midst of this. Right. Yeah. That God is still working. And yeah, I'm going to buck and kick and scream and spit about it. Yeah. Um but I also trust that God is still at work. Yeah. Even though this isn't the timeline that I want. And a lot of people were like, oh, that's not fair. And I'm like, yeah, not really. But you know what? It'll be okay. Yeah. Someday. 
this will come together and it'll be okay and and we'll be all right yeah well that's that that's a beautiful approach nick uh, <laughs> I, know, I know it is a hard posture and i'm sure there yes. are days you feel you feel <laughs> like more like bucking the system than oh there are days yeah and yeah. and being able to talk to brian about that and, yeah. and just have his support of there was one point where he said you know if you want to go in bucking and kicking i'll go with you mm. if you want to just kind of say all right we'll we'll keep going with this then i will sit and wait with you um and so to have his support either way yeah. was awesome yeah. um but just kind of coming away and saying okay not yet yeah yeah no that's cool so looking back through kind of where you've been and and i know you've done a lot of talking on mental health and had some cool opportunities with wesley conference and other things mm -hmm. what what advice would you give young pastors maybe some that are maybe in a similar journey or whatever it is number one get a therapist get a therapist. Um, beautiful. yeah go get yourself in therapy mm. um if not you know simply for the sake of having somebody trusted to talk to and process things with. Yeah. Um, I think, and, and it's, I almost want to say it's becoming kind of trendy right now. Sure. And I hesitate to use that because I think it diminishes, but yeah. nonetheless, I think having a trauma informed approach to ministry makes a literal life or death change in in your parishioners mm. and even in your fellow staff members or yourself um and so learning about not just mental health as far as anxiety and depression but learning about mood and personality disorders learning about trauma um especially church trauma and spiritual abuse yeah um and being able to take a posture of listening to parishioners people and and hearing their stories and recognizing they're not doing this for attention they're not making this up yeah. um this is genuine real valid pain um and and just posturing yourself in that way to hear somebody's brokenness and believe them um literally will make the difference between life and death in some yeah. cases um and and yeah being able to be honest about your own struggles um which again i recognize that's not always possible and like you know there are certain avenues places people etc that aren't the safest to have those conversations which makes me sad and it is frustrating but it's a reality yeah and so being able to find a support group, being able to find just some fellow pastor friends, a therapist, whoever, and be able to say, this is something I struggle with. And this is something I'm having a hard time with. Um, not everybody is able to talk about it from the pulpit. Right. Um, and I get that. Um, but I also think being able to have those conversations and engage honestly about yourself and with other people is crucial, especially these days. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
So if, if, if someone was, let's say, man, yeah, I love the idea of becoming more informed about trauma and those kinds of things, where do you recommend to start? Well, kind of the big to-go-to thing right now is the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and, and very informative very dense but it's um but it's kind of at least in my realm the hallmark of this is what trauma is and this is how it works and what's fascinating is reading about that and going oh i never thought about it that way Mm. and this applies to so many more situations than i ever anticipated um i think also um there are a lot of i would like to say there's a lot of helpful resources in the conversations of mental health trauma abuse um and ministry there are there's also a lot of not so helpful things out there and being able to distinguish and delineate between the two can be tricky um but you know being willing to talk to people and ask Hey, what do you recommend? Or what's been helpful for you? Going to professionals, going to experts, um, trusting they know what they're talking about. Um, but also going to people who have lived through some stuff yeah. and say, what was helpful to you? How did you that's work good. through this? Yeah. Um, and listen to their stories. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. For, for some of the, the older Nazarene pastors uh, who maybe are helping people walk through these processes or some things you learned, what, what, are you gonna, what, what, what do you want to tell them to help with younger pastors or new leaders and things like that? Listen to them. Mm. And I don't just mean hear what they have to say. Listen to their stories. Listen to their pain. Validate and recognize, like I said earlier, they're not making this up. They're not doing this for attention or whatever. Um, Be willing to recognize that their suffering and their pain is real, even if you don't understand it even if it doesn't make any sense to you. And then the other thing, and this is this is something that I think every pastor struggles with to some degree. No matter how much you want to, no matter how gifted or how good of intentions you have, you cannot save a suffering person. Mm. You can't. Um, and that is very hard to hear because we want to, right? and yet that's not your role. Your role is to care. Your role is to support, to come alongside and say, what do you need? How can I help? And even if it's nothing, if they are like, I don't know, like, then I'm just going to sit here with you. Um, I think a lot of times we are so prone to fix, to save, to swoop in and be like, we're going to take care of this for you. And it's like, that's not really helpful. 
it feels good and it might be what we want and even maybe what they want but that's not helpful um you know i i love how people often say that job's friends they did their best when they didn't talk yeah like they showed up saw him on the ash heap and sat silently and mourned with him for seven days and then they opened their mouth and everything went wrong messed it all up yeah, yeah. and so um Jesus is the one who saves them, not us. Our job is to care for them. Our job is to listen, to support, um, to stand beside them and not in front of them, mm. so to speak. And and so to the older pastors, um, I think the first thing, the most important thing is to listen and hear them and believe them. Mm. Um, but then afterwards, you know, to support to care um and if you really want to do you know this is this is the next degree to care for somebody without expectations mm -hmm. because it, it's almost like a, a subtle passive manipulative form of saving where we come in and we care for somebody because we expect if i care for you if i give you this this is what's going to happen right um which at its root is a transaction and it's not actually loving yeah um and so to come in and say i'm gonna care for you i'm gonna listen to you and i'm gonna support you and i hope that it results in this i want it to make your life better but i'm not going to place any expectations on you I am simply going to love and care for you for the sake of loving and caring for you, no matter what happens. Yeah. And that is very difficult. Yeah. But, and it, and it takes a lot of practice and discipline yeah. and messing up. Yeah. But you really want to help pastors and parishioners? That's what you got to do. Yeah. It's good. It's good. We got, we got to we got to change the conversation because I'm starting to get convicted here, Nick. We gotta, oh, no, no. <laughs> no it, it, those are powerful words, and 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 as you said, very difficult to practice. Um, yeah, because our natural state, especially I think, especially as pastors with egos and things, as we want to save, mm -hmm. right? We want to we want to be the the people on the white horse, ready to yeah. Save and I. And I say that as somebody who for two and a half years tried to save their ex-wife yeah. and I learned the hard way. Oh, yeah. I can't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah so. Good. Good. Well, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you sharing your story, Nick. And, yeah. um, it's full of, of wisdom and, and insight. And, um, I think a lot of practical ministry application of how we actually love people. Well, um, mm -hmm. how we indeed write this trauma approach to ministry of being mindful of, uh, being aware of of things that can happen um, and how we enter into those those situations with grace, right? And teach people how to receive grace as we receive grace um, is is good. Any last last thoughts before we end our time here? Well, to kind of circle back to Nazarendom, yeah. One of the things that helped me so much was a conviction of our of our Wesleyan heritage and doctrine. To believe that above all and before all, God is love. Mm. And that God loves all people the same way, pours out that love to us. 
And so when I am caring for people, it's because God has first loved and poured into me that I can then go and give it away because thank God it's not in my own strength or I would fail miserably. That's right. Um, <clears throat> and also believing in prevenient grace that says no person is lost. Yeah. No situation is doomed. Yeah. And even if it doesn't go the way we want, even if, you know, things crumble into ash, we believe in the God of resurrection. Yep. And that the prevenient grace that goes before us looks at things that are dead, that are broken, and says, even this, even this person, even this situation, there is life and there is goodness and there is hope that can come out of this. And so believing that God is at work in the midst of everything, that God is giving me all of the grace I need to yeah. do what I need to do the hard work of caring and listening and all of that. Um, and to believe that no person is entirely, utterly lost. Um, the optimism of grace has kept me going. And to believe that healing and restoration and redemption is possible and resurrection can happen in this life in some way or other. Um, and that's part of the beauty of of the Wesleyan heritage that we have in the Church of the Nazarene. And I want more pastors to preach about it and talk about it, not just, you know, in the kind of traditional ways, but to think about, you know, we are, we are called and gifted with optimism. And, and not just a kind of fluffy optimism, but, you know, a prisoner of hope optimism yeah. that says... Even this, even this, there is hope and there is possibility and life. Amen. That was, that was beautiful. I wanted to pull my hanky out. It was, <laughs> was, was good. Well, well said. Well said, Nick. It has been a pleasure to share this time together. And, and I, hope, I hope you enjoyed these words and, and feel inspired to discover what, what, what this means for your ministry of what next, where maybe God is calling you to go. Well, this has been season eight of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining with the, joining us today, Nick. And uh, be sure to like and subscribe. Josiah keeps texting me about it. He wants <laughs> you to be a part of this. Uh, so follow along. I'm excited as we continue to talk with pastors here uh, in the Church of the Nazarene and, and beyond of what God is doing, what God is up to, and how we can all be a part. Thanks for joining us. we love millennials so much on this podcast we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors here's one now
Grace and peace, friends. My name is Brent Neely, and I recently compiled the book of ancient prayers, 365-plus prayers from the saints of the church. This is a daily prayer book which can be utilized to introduce you and others to different historic prayers throughout our history. It ranges all the way from the first known prayer outside of Scripture up until prayers from the turn of the century. It utilizes people from all around the world bringing together a resource that can be used to dive deeper into your prayer life. I hope you all enjoy it. Peace. Support this author and our podcast by clicking the link in the description. Thank you. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Jonathan Wren. Original music by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider rating, reviewing, or subscribing so both you and other fans of Millennial Pastors can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.